The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Have y'all ever heard of Martin Luther before? That's the question. All right. Have you? I have. Um, I, I find it always... Martin Luther... And here's a, here's a key point behind this. We are not doing this to say, hey, let's be followers of Martin Luther. It's not. Martin Luther, if you do the research, Martin Luther had a lot of... Uh, of uh, faulty areas as well in his theology. Um, Martin Luther was against a lot of things that we would, uh, or he was for things we would be against. But I, I want you to understand what he did. Give you a kind of a little history as we kind of go along today. Now, over the uh, over the few next few weeks, we're going to be taking on a variety of areas in regarding the Reformation and Christian Reconstruction. Uh, and I and I put it in the way of Christian Re- Reformation and Reconstruction for a reason. We'll be looking at history. And historical documents, so things we have from the past, heresies. We'll talk about people. You know what a heresy is? People use that word a lot, and they usually misuse it. Um, just because you disagree with something that someone believes does not mean it's a heresy. A heresy is a teaching that is contrary to the Word of God, contrary to the nature of Christ, His salvation, and so forth. A heresy is means there's salvation somewhere else most of the time. Or that Jesus, if someone says that Jesus did not die for the sins of mankind, or Jesus didn't exist, or the Bible is untrue, those are heretical things. Most people, um, most things that are outside of that would be considered paganism. But we're going to be taught the creeds and confessions. We're going to talk to them about those, some of those, and uh, we're also going to teach, talk about how the church sought to destroy those heresies. Okay, and so. When we we deal with it, the reason why we want to know what these are is primarily because they come back and people use them again. People will say the same things again. And so some of it will be over the uh, whether Jesus was God or not. There are people, there's a, there are one heresy that believed that Jesus was not God until he was raised from the dead. He was completely man and that was all he was. That's what one teaching was. So we need to look at those things and understand what they said. The goal, as always, is to identify those false teachings. It's always to know what those are, so that when you hear them, what can we do? When we hear the false teachings, we can say, this is wrong, and this is truth, and this is where we stand. So, here he goes. Here we are. What is the Reformation all about? Okay, so we're going to have other areas of Reformation, but what is the Reformation all about? And I want you to think about this. There's a man named Martin Luther. And what Martin Luther did, Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. Okay? Well, I don't, would not want people to understand, think that Martin Luther had started his own religion or, any, or his own denomination. He did not. Lutheranism is a teaching that followed the teaching of Martin Luther. But Luther did not start it. Luther was a Catholic monk, and I'll kind of give you a history behind that. He was raised, his dad um, owned a copper mine, and his dad was more wealthy than some of the others, so he sent Luther to school. And originally he sent him to, to school for 
um, for one purpose, but then later on he changed it and he sent him to law school. So Martin Luther started off as a lawyer. What's important to know about that is the mentality of a lawyer's mind. A lawyer's mind is to know law and to know the not only to know every aspect of it, but how it applies. But what happened was, is he had an experience, and um, he is coming home in the midst of a large storm. It said that, and in the process of that, lightning is striking all around him, and he just prayed that God, if you will get me out of this, I'll give my life to you. And in that moment, he went from there, and as God saved his life and allowed or, short, or allowed him to to live, he went into be a monk. He went to be um, a a if you want to say a Catholic priest or of sorts. And so one of the things that along that thing, along that process is as he learned, um, he continued to to uh, continue to expand, uh, continue to in his knowledge, and he was in an area called Wittenberg. And so what he has known is he started having there was these problems, and we're going to talk about these problems today. The three main issues that Martin Luther had with the Catholic Church. And that's what we're going to, those will be our three main points today. So that we understand that those three things come up still today. And so here, it, what it has is he, he listed these, these grievances, grievances against the church or these questions. Not He didn't go and make accusations against the Pope. He did not do these things. He made these 95 theses, these 95 statements, and he nailed them to the door at Wittenberg, at Wittenberg Castle. It's a church at Wittenberg Castle. And what he doing so, he was not vandalizing, by the way. Very common when they were announcements were, uh, were published in the very center of all things. So things were published on the door, this wooden door, right? So he goes and he places it up there, not as a protest, but as a statement. Now I want to make it very clear that these are things that he was saying, and he he came and he he actually his point was that if anyone wanted to debate him on this subject, he would debate them in uh, in person on this day at this place, or if they were too far off, he was willing to take personal letters and to do, to do the debate with them regarding that. So his point was, we have to think about what we believe, what our doctrine is saying. Now there's some things that came up during this time. And, I'll, and, I'll, and most of his, his, his problems weren't, were about this thing called indulgences. Now, when we think about indulgence, we're thinking of things that, you know, every once in a while we get to indulge ourselves and we might get, we might get some special treat like, like really nice chocolate. Uh, y'all's dad brought some chocolates back from, from overseas and they were pretty awesome things, right? That's indulging yourself. But when we talk about indulgences in regard to Martin Luther, we're not talking about, oh, we got a special, oh, I got a nice big steak today, or I got some chocolates, or I, I got some, you know, go buy the shoes that I want. It's not that kind of indulgence. We're talking about something that has to do with our lives, including our eternal life. And so his 95 Theses were... Uh, had two two central beliefs that the Bible is a central religious authority and that humans may reach salvation only by their faith and not by their deeds. And this is what sparked what's called the Protestant Reformation. Protestant mean we protest against. Okay? 
So all, I, I want to say, although Martin Luther is ultimately not the first reformer, we need to look at what he was reforming. So here's number one on your notes. Number one, God's Word is the final authority. God's Word is the final authority. And A, if you want to go ahead and put it there because we're going to do it, the Bible is God's revelation to man for man and a biblical society. This is key. This is key for us to hear. The Bible is God's revelation to man for man and a biblical society. 2 Timothy 3 is a, is a familiar passage and it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, you might as well say woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word, the word of God, Scripture itself, is breathed out by God for, the, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that every person in Christ may be fully equipped. Hebrews 4, 12-13 tells us that the, the Word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom He must give account. What that means is when the Word of God comes up against who we are, there is no way we can fake it. There's no way we can... We might be able to fake it before other people, but when we come before God and the standard of His Word, there's no faking it. We are what we are. We are in our sin or we are in Christ. And so we're able to be lays bare. There's nothing else that, that, that is there between us and God. The Word of God is His very breathed out. It is His revelation to us, for us, and for a biblical society. B under that is this. No one though, is to bind the conscience of the believer through false authority and legalism. Let y'all write that down. There is no one to bind the conscience of the believer through false authority and legalism. Now let me share with you, in Martin Luther's day, when we consider it medieval times, is where we're looking at, the highest authority in the church was the Pope. Okay? And if the Pope made a statement, or he issued a statement, everyone was supposed to follow, even if the statement was against Scripture. Now we'll talk about how that, why he got away with it. Because if you knew it was against the Scripture, how often would... If, someone, if a group of people said, that's not in the God's Word... What would they do? They would rebel against that authority, wouldn't they? Because it would be an ungodly. But that's the key. Because they believe that the church held all authority. That the church, the, 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 the Pope, the Cardinals, the priests, are the ones, who are the ones who speak for God. Therefore, they would end up binding the conscience of others. That means they would bind the hearts and the minds of others. And they would do it sometimes legalistically. And that's part of that is through indulgences. And, I, and our next point that we'll get to in a moment, I'm going to talk about the indulgences and what those were. Okay? In Romans 2, verses 12 through 16, it says, For all who have sinned 
Without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law, listen carefully, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. The key is, the key behind this, the authority behind it, the authority behind all things that we do should be God's word. Should be God at his word. Okay? The final authority is never man. And the thing is, if we look to man for our authority, individuals, what happens? We can be misled. They can, they can mislead us. They can tell us something wrong. Um, they can also to do, tell us to do things that are not even written in Scripture. They can hold us to a standard that's not even there. The thing is, is God created us in such a way that we would honor Him at His Word. That's why when God says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, it's not about the parents. It's about God who you're honoring. You honor God by honoring your father and mother. You honor God by doing what He has commanded. And even the littlest of things. Proverbs 3 tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. He will guide you into the way you're supposed to go when we trust in him for everything. Scripture tells us this is where we're supposed to be. We're as we're moving forward, I want you to hear this. It talks about he's written it on their conscience. He's talking about trust in the Lord with all that you are. And if I told you to trust in your Lord, trust in the Lord with all that you are, but I don't show you how to do it, there's a, there's a problem here. This is where we come in. Psalm 20, which we read this morning, verses 6 through 8. I want to read just really verse 7. Some people trust in all kinds of things, but it says in verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some people trust in big armies and their governments, and they, they, they trust in those things. In Martin Luther's time, the problem that they had was they were ruled by a pope and they were ruled by a king. Okay? They were ruled by a king. You know how to do that? Fix that? And both of them, both of them, here's the problem. When you're ruled by, what? When he talks about this, what he's talking about, what he's saying is that he had this, this interesting thing. So he has a foreign king, a Roman king, 
And he has what? He has a pope, these two authorities that are they're being told they're placed over him, binding the conscience of the people, binding the conscience of men. And some people trust and they're worried and they fear the the big the big government who could come down and so they whatever the government says they do or whatever the church says we're going to do and it you know and what's interesting is the popes and I'll, and I'll share this with y'all are y'all paying attention because I see all the heads down so if heads are down I don't know if you're paying attention all right so the thing about popes even in our lifetime is one pope there's one thing that you'll, the, the Catholics will tell you, the Roman Catholics will tell you about popes, is that there is a doctrine which came later, and I'm going to talk about this in another thing, a doctrine that the pope is infallible. That means the pope can't sin. He can't be wrong. Was the pope man? Well, they consider the pope the vicar of Christ, meaning he's a mediator between Christ and us. There's a problem with that. Because he was a, he's, mere, he's a mere man. Secondly, when popes disagree with one another, when one pope says this, and then a couple years later, this other pope forgives this sin and says, I mean, one says Muslims are okay and going to heaven. One says this, and, and, and that's contrary to the word of God. But their word is if Christ is speaking to his people. So what we have is, we have a people who, whether they intend to or not, they're binding the consciences of people. They, whether they intend to or not, which I believe they intend to, they have people who trust in these powers rather than in God. And we are called to not worry about the chariots or the, the big governments and the big church or anything like that. We are called to trust in the name of the Lord our God. We're also taught, told in Colossians chapter 2 that we are to see that no one takes you captive by hollow or by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. We're to be careful about what people teach us that someone doesn't come to us according to human tradition or the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him the fullness of the deity dwells. And you have been filled in Him, it says, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through, Christ, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with Him. And I want us to see this. Because we need to be careful that someone doesn't come. The first thing that people want to do when they want to teach you something contrary to the Word of God is they want to bind your conscience in some way. And it's never the big stuff. It's never, maybe it's my, maybe the conversation, no one's going to come and talk to you about homosexuality and try to change your mind about what that is. But they might come to try to bind your conscience on how you dress. I've been in churches where that there, that that um, that there's very specific things for women to wear and very specific things for men to wear. And if you even if like if women don't wear dresses every Sunday, they're in sin. They'll be asked to go home after the first time. Next time they show up without it, they'll ask to either sit in the cry room or go home. Men, there's a church that I, that was near us that we used to serve, uh, where I used to serve, and and the men had to come to church with with a suit on. And a tie. If you didn't come with a suit and tie, you weren't coming in the door. Why? Because you need to be wearing your Sunday best. 
Well, what if your Sunday best was a nice pair of shorts and a t-shirt and a nice polo shirt, and that's all you had? Too bad it wasn't good enough for them. And until you could look that way, until you dress that way, you weren't honoring God in their sight. That's sin. That's legalism. They might start off in the small things, but I'm going to tell you something. When there's a church or some group that controls the dress in such a way, I can guarantee you they're going to come and try to control other aspects of your life. If they're going to take little things like that, they're going to come after other things in your life and try to bind your conscience. We have to be careful with the teaching that comes toward us. We weigh everything according to God's Word. And here's the problem. And we'll get to this. I keep saying we're going to get to it. But here's the problem. In Martin Luther's day, the only people who really could read were the people who had gone to school. And the only people who had really got an education and gone to school were the rich. The upper class. Remember I told you his dad owned a copper mine and they had money and sent him to school? Only those who... And so there's a lot of poverty. And in the midst of poverty, there are a lot of people who are ignorant. They could not read. They're illiterate. They couldn't read. They couldn't write or any of those things. Secondly, and Martin Luther was from a country we know called Germany, correct? And Germany, in Germany they speak... German. Guess what scripture was written in? Not German. It was written in Latin. And that means they did not only and if, if you look at the original a lot of the original writings, it could have been in it could have been Hebrew, Greek, possibly Aramaic, but most of the church operated in Latin. And here's the problem. Most people didn't speak Latin, nor did they read Latin. So guess what? All the Bibles were in Latin. So, when someone who's your teacher, or who's your preacher, or your priest, or whoever comes and says, this is what God's Word said, what did the people do? They hoped that they were telling the truth. But guess what? They weren't always. But no one knew. But you have someone like Martin Luther, who reads this and is translating it, making copies of Scripture, handwritten copies of Scripture, and he's seeing all the places where the Pope doesn't have this authority, where, where God has not given all men over to these authorities, and he's saying he's, the Scripture is written to men, not just to the Pope or to priests. And there becomes a problem. The second thing is that Martin Luther saw, and here's the thing that he, he stood upon. Secondly, salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. And we're going to read the scripture that says this. Salvation is by grace through faith. And not my grace. Thank the Lord. It's not by grace through another girl named Faith, it's by God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2 says what? Let's look at it. And you were dead in your, in your trespasses and sins. I can't read today. In which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, here he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Doesn't stop there. And it says, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But look at verse 8. You look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through works. Does it say that? By grace you have been saved by what your parents have done. By grace you've been saved by what your parents have taught you. By grace through what? Faith. Faith. That's a big deal. If a person has to say something else, then they better go back to school. No, they better go back to the scriptures. They're about to get schooled, aren't they? We need to understand. Is by grace through faith. And this is not, look at that, and this is not your own doing. Not a result, it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is, this just blew it all out of the water because here's the thing. The Catholic Church and the Catholic Church today will say, oh yes, we believe it's salvation by, by grace through faith with works. Because they'll go to James. But it's not. Salvation is not based upon the works that you do. Salvation is not, the, is not based upon the evidence of works that you do. Salvation is based upon the gift of God. Salvation is by grace through faith. And this is the gift of God. So that why? You can't boast of what you've done. It's God's work in and through you. with, And you don't have a part in that. So if a man is not saved by God's grace, and they do not have the gift of faith either, what up? They're not saved. Okay? That's plain and simple. So A. Alright, here's A. This is not a work of you or any man, or any church. This is not a work of you, or any man, or any church. The church can't save you. I cannot save you. Your mom and dad cannot save you. You cannot save you. You know why that's true? Beyond the scripture I'm going to read to you. Remember when we started that last scripture in Ephesians 2? He says you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Okay. Let's use the illustration. And it was used before. And people were, there was a man who believed that you choose Christ. And that but there's, they used this illustration of there was this man who fell overboard. They used, they used the illustration of being dead, of, of, of being dead, and not dead, but he used the illustration of what it's like when you're not saved is that you're a man in the sea and God throws his life preserver 
a life preserver, a lifesaver, you know, big thing, a Jesus. So you grab hold of it, and he drags you to his shore. The problem is, my, one of my favorites, he's, now, he's passed away now. His name is R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul responded, No. The truth is, dead man can't grab the life preserver. It doesn't matter if you throw the flotation device. A dead man can't do anything. He's dead. Best way of looking at it, he's a dead man on the bottom of the ocean floor. And God reaches down and grabs him from the depths of his death and he pulls him up and breathes life into him. That's what salvation is a picture of. Because it's not your own doing. John 1 verses 12-13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, not of the, or, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they're born of God. That means it's not because of, of, of anything you've done to atone for it. It's not what, by your will. You can't will yourself into heaven. That means you can't say, I want to go to heaven, I want to go to heaven, I want to go to heaven. That has nothing to do with it. You're not going to will yourself into the presence of God and into salvation. I mean, you can hope and dream all you want, but unless God draws you, unless God grabs hold of you, there is no salvation. That's why we talk about the power of the covenant so much. And it says also, not the will of man. That means it doesn't matter how much your mommy and your daddy want you to go to heaven one day. It, the thing is, is God is going to get a hold of you. God takes hold of you. And what does He do? He saves that soul. And the thing is, is I see evidences, even when there are things wrong in different areas, one of the evidences I see is repentance. Guilt and conviction regarding sin. Repentance is a great sign of those who are saved. Repentance of sin. But this is not a work of you or any man or any church. And B, nobody but Christ, and this is a word, I'm going to use the word that they use, what Martin Luther used, absolve your sin. No one but Christ can absolve your sin. And this is a key thing. In Martin Luther's day, this was the problem. Remember I told you, I told you, I'll tell you about indulgences. So, the Pope of the time, because he was very spendthrift, he likes to use, he spent all the gold and all the silver of all the, of, that was in the basilica, that was in the, in the, in the coffer basically to pay for everything. He wanted to update the basilica and St. Peter's Basilica, and he wanted to make it this beautiful art piece, and he wanted to do all these things. But he didn't have the money to do it, or he didn't want to spend his own money. Luther said he had plenty in his own pocket to do it. But he didn't want to pay for it. It's the duty of God's people to pay for it. So guess what happens? In order to raise money to make the church a beautiful piece of art, they started doing something. They would sell what's called indulgences. And indulgences were, you would buy this indulgence, which meant... It was something that it was a it was a pass. It was a ticket, if you would say, for forgiveness of sin that you might not have committed yet, but you would like to in the future. So that could be that you would buy this indulgence, and the Pope would pray 
for you to be absolved, forgiven of that sin. And you could purchase them in advance. Or after the fact. But what it was was a church fundraising campaign built upon forgiveness of sins. So if you pay enough money, your sin's forgiven. Nobody but Christ can absolve your sin. And Martin Luther had a problem with this. Because basically, without it saying it, he was saying, you're pimping out Jesus. You're, you're, you're looking at the work of Christ. You're, looking at, you're taking the work of Christ and you're stomping on it as if it's nothing. That simply, it was just a, it's a small penalty to pay. Acts 4, 11-12 says, This is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And not only that, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be forgiven. There is no other method. There is no other work. Romans 3 tells us in verse 21 through 26, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a... This word is this word here is called propitiation. It's a payment, the atonement for sin. The full payment. He put it as by His blood. Jesus paid the full atonement by your sin, by His blood. And the thing is, <coughs> you can't sell that. No man can sell that. And it must be received by faith. He goes on to say that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is the just judge of forgiveness of sins. My question comes to you, and I want you to think about this. If the Pope is man, who absolves his sin? Who does he buy indulgences from? And hence I would tell you later on, this is where the teaching of the infallibility of the Pope came from. Because that was the question that came up. Because the Pope needs just as much forgiveness as any cardinal, as any priest, as any layman in the land. Because he's not Christ. And the last thing is a big importance, which I already hit on. Every believer trained for action. Now, there's some bad things that happened. There were some consequences of some of the things that, that happened and, uh, because of this. And I encourage you to read the history of the Peasants' re Rebellion, the Peasants' Revolt. And Martin Luther came out against the Peasants' Revolt. Although he put the language of the Bible, he said unrighteousness one unrighteous act you don't you do not you do not overcome unrighteousness through another unrighteous act that means you do not overcome evil with evil 
And he came out and against, and that those things should be put down. And I think that's an interesting place, but I want you to say, Martin Luther was known for several notable things, but he was also persecuted for this. His belief the Word of God be in every man's common language. That means that the German people should hear the Word of God in German. That means for the English people to hear the Word of God in English. That... And, and, and that was the case. That was the problem. They didn't hear it. They didn't know it. The scripture tells us it is by hearing that one believes. It doesn't mean that you have to be able to read it for yourself. But the thing is, to be able to hear the word of God, that people will repent and turn to Christ because they hear the word of God read. And what happened was... While because of this, there was a persecution that broke out. There was he was a wanted man. He was an outlaw. So he while he was in seclusion for a year, you know what he did? First thing he did in a very short amount of times, he translated the New Testament first in a matter of weeks. He translated the New Testament into German, and it was being printed at the same time that this was going on. Guess what? The printing press was being made. The first printing press had come out. And guess what they were doing? Every time he would print pages, it was going out into the German language. Books were being made of the New Testament. Then the whole Bible was done. Luther finished the whole work. And what happened is the people were able to hear God's Word in their language. And guess what? They became convicted by it. Amen. Second Timothy, remember what it said? That all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And when people, the people of God heard God's word in their language, what happens? Not only are their eyes open, they once again they become obedient to God's word, to Christ and his commands, rather than obedient just to the church because it's the church, just to the Pope because he's the Pope, just to the king because he's the king. They now hear God's word. And they're able to say, this is truth. Proverbs 22.6 is a familiar passage. And it says, train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Listen, it's hard for people to know it's righteous and to act righteously when they don't know the very things of God. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word, O Lord, is a lamp and to my feet and a light to my path. Can you imagine hearing God's word for the first time in your language and knowing what God's word said? What if you were able to read? You know, it's freeing when you, that's what would happen is they started teaching people how to read and how to write using the Bible. You know, a lot of that's what a lot of missionaries do around the world. They teach the people that they find, they get the Bible and they put it into the language of the people. And in the language of the people, they begin to to read and to write. They become literate, meaning they have the ability to read and write. And what happens when people can read and write? They can learn, and they're no longer dependent on an oppressor of any sort. They're no no longer dependent. They can learn and apply God's Word. They can learn all types of things on their own. It was interesting. I remember, I remember one missionary said they would go over and they'd pull teeth. They, they, he was a dentist. 
and he would go over to pull the teeth because they were bad teeth and that could cause all kinds of infections and you actually could die from a bad tooth. And so what happened is he was going over there and next thing you know these guys were just going ahead and doing it. They were, he was, they would watch him do it and they, if he had, they had the instruments to do it, they could do the very things needed themselves. They see one do one and they go. Okay? People, and it was all types of things, but when you put this type of aspect in there, when people could know God's Word, they can apply it. And then what happens? Societies are changed. They're also held to a different standard now, too, but their societies change. In 2 Timothy 2.15, says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What do you think if a, a nation who once did not know God, now not only can know God, has the word of God in their language, they also are able to take that and apply it to their lives. They can rightly handle the word of truth. They're responsible to God. They act in according to his word. And what happens? Nations are changed. People's lives are changed. Families are changed. And this was a big turning point. That's why it's called, it called the Protestant Reformation. It's reforming the church. Okay, It's changing of the church. Think about this. October 31st, which a lot of people celebrate as Halloween, was the day that, that Martin Luther had nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle. And let me share something with you. That was 501 years ago. So think about this. We look at it around Christ died around 30, in the 30s AD, right? That's what we look at. We're talking about 1,500 years after Christ and things had gone astray. And here it is, a Reformation breaks out. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.